Hey, hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans, it is I, your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions, Sacramento, California-based filmmaking company. Uh, right now, I am in post-production editing Lady Hyde, still, and editing uh, Emmanuel in Sin City, and writing two other films as we speak. Uh, I like to jump back and forth to try to break up the rhythms and the monotony of editing sometimes you know if you're any fellow editors or filmmakers out there you know when you start editing uh sometimes it's you know eight ten twelve hour days and you know after about 20 days in a row you start looking and getting bored and want to do other stuff so instead of pushing through and making it miserable i like to try to get to a certain point and then uh jump over to something else so i don't get too burned out and then jump back in when the feeling takes me, uh, usually, um, for me, I like to write or draw or paint or do podcasts or do other types of art to keep the momentum going and all that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Franco would just do it one after another, but like I said before, he didn't do his editing and that. So he got to just stay on project after project. I don't know, doing 12 to 14 films a year, that's going to be an impossibility, but, I think if I'm cool with doing two or four a year, I think I'm I'm cool with that. But uh, so that reminds us and brings us to film fifty four episode fifty four, female vampire. Oh, and what a vampire she is! Uh, French and Belgian uh, production, nineteen seventy three, La Contessa Noir, the French um, build in country there. The Black Countess, uh, Femmes Vampires, Belgium theatrical soft version, uh, Vampire, or see, va- yeah, Vampire Verwoven, uh, Belgian Dutch language theatrical soft version, alternative titles, uh, French hardcore theatrical French video title, um, The Swallowers, that's uh, Le Avalus, and uh, we have French alternative video, The Topless Contest. Topless Countess, uh, Le Contesse Sauvignos. Uh, then we have the German theatrical Unleashed Desire. Interfetalist Bijigard. Then we have um, the German hardcore theatrical Lustful Vampires in Semen Rush. Wow. Lustful Vampires in Semen Rush. That's interesting. Lustier Vampire in Spermash. Uh, un Caldo de Corpo de Femina, Italian theatrical, Hot Body of a Woman. Uh, and of course, Bare Breasted Countess. And for the Euro scene, deal. And then also, Erotic Kill was a U.S. video version of this. Uh, also, The Loves of Irina, U.S. video. Erotic Killer, Italian video, Extra Blood Sucking Scenes. Uh, Erotic Kill, Lady Dracula 2 was a German video. Erotic Kill, Listerine Vampire in Supermarsh, German video. Um, Verten Herrin, Morserin, French video, Bloodstained Bride. And of course, Female Vampires, Moretes Vampiras, Spanish video. Uh, Attack of the Vampire in El Aqua de la Vampiras, Uncado Corpo de Dona. And uh, Emma Decio de Vampira. Also, let's see, Unconfirmed Titles, Insatiable Lust, uh, Jacula, Jacula, 
Belgian theatrical, uh, Last Thrill, and possibly Yakula. Uh, production companies on this are Eurocene and uh, Gineril Films from Brussels. They're not sure on that. Uh, theatrical distribution, Eurocene Paris, uh, Cosmopolitan Films, Brussels. Okay, initial shooting on this. There's quite a few different shooting things because they did different versions and that. Um, so the initial shooting in Madeira is autumn 1973. Uh, further shooting in Paris, uh, December 1973. Further shooting in Brussels, uh, February, March 1974. And then Belgium, Brussels, finally it played uh, January 24th of 1975, about a year later. Uh, French visa issued March 21st, 75. Played France May 7th, 75. Uh, they got the UK X certificate granted December 75. And finally played their UK cinema release January 76. And played Turin, Italy uh, May 11th of 1978. Theatrical running times on this. France 88 minutes. UK uh, 58 minutes. Castlina Romay, Jack Taylor, Alice Arno, Monica Swim, Jess Franco, Roger Germanes, uh, Luis Barbu, Anne Wadikin, Bigotini, Pierre Quaret, um, Ramon Ardid, Jean-Pierre Ballou, and Gilda Aranesio. Uh, credits, director Jess Franco, dialogue, Josine Perret, Belair as P. Belair, director of photography, Jess Franco, as Joan Vincent, one of his many aliases. I love it. Last couple films he's been doing female names for aliases. Editing by Pierre Quarot. Music by Daniel White. Uh, let's see. Um, uncredited producer Daniel Lesseur. Uh, screenplay H.L. Rotin and Joseph Jaholet. Actual editor Jess Franco. So he did actually edit this film. Uh, assistant director that's probably, probably took an hour I mean a year to come out assistant director Richard Deconnect aka Bigotini uh, still photographer Ramon Ardid makeup Elisa Linda Villanueva assistant editor Ramon Ardid okay so once again we always take all information from Murderous Passions by Mr. Stephen Thrower it's volume one of the Jess Franco book and he writes production notes the fourth film began during the Madeira the fourth film began during the Madeira trip La Contessa Noir also known as female vampire would eventually become Franco's best known of the period and one of the most beguiling of his whole career however it was not completed on Madeira instead it would be sewn together in the coming months incorporating scenes shot in Paris in February 74 involving Monica Swim Alice Arno and Gilda Arancio and exteriors filmed in the countryside near Paris with Romay and Roger Gimanes. Uh, yet more scenes were filmed on a studio soundstage in Brussels, uh, comprising the police procedural material with Franco and Pierre Quaret, and the Orloff scenes with Jean-Pierre Boulou. Note that in the English-language dub, Baron von Rathry writes in his diary the date is February 22nd, 74. Did the voice artist perhaps use the actual dubbing date for the dialogue? Female vampire embarked on an even more complicated journey after completion, going through numerous re-edits and retitlings to shape it for different markets at a time when the goalposts of what could legally be shown were moving constantly. Let's see. Um review. 
Opening with probably the most iconic image in just Franco's Ovour, Leon Romay walking through a mist-shrouded forest nude except for a cape, black boots, and leather belt. This is a crucial but divisive entry into the director's filmography. Admirers feel that it embodies all that is wonderful about its cinema. Others see nothing more than a lethargic, soft-core snooze. Female Vampire may not be the best place to begin if you're planning a journey through the Franco Labyrinth, but it's a film you simply have to see if you're remotely curious. Franco's casual reputation as a purveyor of sexy horror thrills does nothing to prepare the first-time viewer for the strangeness that awaits here. While this is quite explicitly a film about a female sex vampire, it's delivered to the screen as a stylistic figure in I'm sorry, it's delivered to the screen as a stylistic fugue in which loneliness, desire, submission, and sadness predominate Franco uh, predominate. Franco either ignores or erases the clear demarcations that would make this a conventional genre product. Instead, his camera and his attitude ensure that we enter this exotic dream world on his terms. Don't expect a horror movie. Expect a Jess Franco movie. It's really as simple as that. Before we go on, it's important to mention that the female vampire exists in a bewildering multiplicity of versions. Beginning at the very source... Franco actually shot a horror version and a erotic version, which several key scenes being filmed twice. In the horror version, Irina's vampiric attacks involves the sucking of blood, while in the erotic version, the fluids are seminal and vaginal. Later, a hardcore version called The Swallowers was created, incorporating ugly, poorly matched pornographic material not filmed by Franco. Further complicating matters over the years, the vagaries of what was permissible in different markets resulted in various emphasizing either the sexual content or the horror contents. For the purposes of initial discussions, I'll be talking about the uncut, erotic version of the film, which is basically softcore with one instance of mild hardcore, namely a couple of passing shots of Lena Romay filleting her then-husband, Ramon Ardid. Central, though, the film is to a discussion of Franco's work. There's something strange and elusive about a female vampire. Just as though you think you're getting it, you find that it shifts and changes. I've watched it maybe 15 times, and yet it always feels different, as though scenes have taken on a different timber, which, whilst I've been away... Familiarity never seems to dull the experiences. The clouds keep changing. The mood shifts. Emotional colors intensify or recede. I think this is because the film, with its slumberous, opiated texture, never delivers itself whole. Or rather, you never make it all the way through with your wits unscrambled. Sensuous and suffocating, it's soaked in a narcotic fog as pervasive as the mist that swirls through the Madeirian locations. The mind is encouraged to drift. Awareness evisence. Details of characters and story. Time and place. Cause and effect. Swim around in your head like twinkling lights dissolving through a defocused lens into pastel blurs. No one 
No wonder one spots things after eight viewings that seemingly, suddenly, blindingly are obvious. It's like trying to follow a narrative under hypnosis. I love this film, and I've allowed it to mesmerize me many times, but even I must admit it presents challenges for the viewers. It's very slow, it's about ten minutes too long, and if you haven't yet embraced Franco's use of the zoom lens, the device will gnaw at your sensibilities throughout. Numerous shots swim out of focus, and although this is deliberate, it can be hard for casual viewers to spot the difference between a genuine stylistic fingerprint and a moment of ineptitude or laziness. Vampiric lore is abandoned. Irina goes sunbathing. Her elective affinity is not with bats, but with birds, and there's nary a fang nor a stake in sight. Same goes for garlic, crucifixes, castles, and cobwebs, so anyone watching with traditional expectations will find the experience frustrating. Even the sexy stuff is bespoke, tailored to Franco's idiocentric viewpoint. Nudity is frequent, but the eroticism never kindles into steamy passion. It's a dreamy version of arousal which Franco favors, moving it to rhythms might one call feminine rather than the usual phallic device of erotic cinema. Add to those factors the woeful English language dubbing, which makes male lead Jack Taylor sounds like a bored mafia don reading cue cards with a blink blocked nose, an episodic discontinuous narrative line with little sense of energy, and you have a film that alienate a sizable proportion of viewers. <clears throat> but all of these problems are answerable. The film is slow because the Countess Irina lives outside times. Her existence is formless, eternal, without beginning or end. This also explains the narrative structure and the absence of cumulative energy. The running time varies according to which version one sees. Eroticil, the horror version, runs at tidy 70 minutes. The zoom lens is Franco's personal signature, turning the image into a series of pulsations which mimic the organic process of breathing and the stirrings of arousal. It's also a time-saving device essentially to his very low-budget projects. The shots that slide out of focus as often, though admittedly not always, part of the mesmeric hypnotic aura Franco wishes to create. Plus, they reflect the way the Countess overrides the will of others, suggesting the dislocation of willpower by irresistible seduction. Vampiric lore, as commonly understood, stems from Dracula, a Victorian novel about a patriarchal vampire. This is a modern story about a female vampire. The rules are different, as men are from women. Like its nearest relative, the relentlessly sun-drenched Vampiros Lesbos, it forsakes the curious Kuro convention of gothic horror. Note that Franco's male-centered horror films, uh, Count Dracula, Dracula, President of Frankenstein, and the erotic rites of Frankenstein, have many more scares of dark scenes of darkness in the female vampire stories, a decision aligning women with the power of the sun and men with the shadows of the night. As for the terrible English dubbing, this is easily sidestepped if one chooses the French language print with English subs, which is the way that I do it. I never I always go with a subtitle over dub, just so much better. 
Uh, moving on, it's important to ask what it is that Irina does to her victims, a question that takes us to the heart of Franco's musings on sex and desire. For instance, by giving head to her first victim, she appears to be practicing a symbolic form of vampirism, uh, siphoning off life essence with a blowjob, although poor old Roger Germain seems lessless even before Irina goes down on him. The same thing happens in the uncut version to the Hotel Masseur, played by Ramon Ardid, both cases were left wondering what's really happened. Does Irina kill her lovers with an excess of pleasure, perhaps sustaining the orgasm until they die of a heart attack? Or is the process more metaphysical with some ill-defined life force ebbing away with the scenes? Or ebbing away with the semen? Uh, is it blood that's being sucked? If so, we don't see any. Local mad Madarian mystic Dr. Orloff tells the police, I have found in the early books of pathos of pathos writings in the countess of Karlstein and her murders according to pathos she sucked the bodies of her victims and fed herself on their hormones so why does this loss of hormones kill them the ambi- the ambiguity is even more puzzling during irena's lesbian clinch with anna an investigative journalist who asked too many personal questions while wearing an alluring swimsuit. Anna expires during a vigorous bout of cunnilingus, and we see Irina's head pop up from between the victim's thighs with a clear, viscous fluid dripping from her mouth. However, given that there's no real connection between vaginal fluids and vitality, unlike the lore that surrounds seminal hormones... There's no way that Anna could have been drained, in which case the fluids are irrelevant. The cause of death appears pretty purely metaphysical. There's an explanation of sorts delivered in a single line of dialogue by Franco himself, but it's highly problematic. He plays a metaphysical inclined coroner called Dr. Roberts, who describes the first victim's case thus. He was bitten in the middle of an orgasm, and the vampire sucked his semen and life away. This suggests that Irina drained the victim's blood along with his seminal fluid. Unfortunately, it's far from evident when watching the scene in question. An unfortunate casualty of the decision to shoot a sexy version and a horror version. In La Contessa Noir, there is no indication of blood being sucked. Not a drop or a smear on Irina's lips or anywhere on the victim. In Erotic Hill, she literally goes for the jugular, chewing at the victim's throats with blood dripping from her mouth but leaving the sex organs untouched. The blood and semen explanation is compromised by the nature of the project. It relates not to what we see in the either version, but the impossible synthesis of the two. But if the prosaic mechanics of Irina's actions are hidden and the conventional upstairs-downstairs structure of text and subtext is redundant, what is left to propel female vampire? What's left when the details hived off to erotic hill? The dynamics of the mythos are put aside. The key word is seduction. Irina's death-dealing power to in her impossible ability to seduce. Sex seals the deal, so to speak, but seduction stirs the passions. First, the victim's needs, thus aroused, becomes insatiable. Irina's seduction draws out the flame of desires until the body can no longer burn. It's the same force we encountered in Venus and Furs, in which Dennis Price's character is seduced to death by a dead woman's reflection in a mirror his body untouched, his clothes not even loosened. Seduction can occur without direct physical contact. One can be seduced by an image, by a voice, by an idea. At home, 
after the interview, Anna finds herself involuntarily stroking her own breast while the countess' dismembered voice tells her that she has been marked. Although physically the two have only shaken hands so far, given that a handshake seems insufficient to secure domination of mind, body, and spirit, we can assume that it takes attraction, whether acknowledged by the victim or not, for the countess to gain psychic control. Irina's first victim, the man at the bird sanctuary, is seduced without a word being spoken. He sees her at a distance of fifty yards and is drawn first by the striking oddness of her appearance, then by her compelling silence and beauty. Franco frames their sexual encounter through the wire mesh of two bird enclosures. Although Irina and the man are actually in a walkway between the enclosures, they are, in effect, visually trapped by the superimposed wires. The entrapment without lock suggests the way that desire propels us into self-created prisons of the mind, while to an onlooker we're as free as anyone else. This is one of Franco's most consistent themes, seduction and desire, a vortex into which we plunge, unable to tell if we're letting ourselves go or being sucked in by the forces beyond our control. Note that in the framing of the bird sanctuary scene, traps both vampire and victim Desire is the curse that unites them. The countess herself is a victim of desire, a creature who pines for peace, for an end to the killing, yet must leech away the life essence of others to survive. As she says in voiceover, Why has my body once again the desire of death? Why has my body once again the desire of death? Why can't my senses survive without the last breath of a victim? We see her masturbating astride an unconscious victim, frantically grabbing and groping at her snatch in search of satisfaction deeper and more lusting and lasting than anyone can deliver, with or without a penis. Hers is truly a tragic situation. In one scene, we see Irina orally fixate on a bedpost that's been getting in the way of Franco's lens like a camera-hungry extra throughout the film. Arousal escalates, and suddenly the bed's sausage-shaped bolster gets in on the action, too. It's weird and funny and absurd, as if the world of objects is being pulled into the vacuum of Irina's hunger. But there's sadness, too, which comes from seeing her unable to find peace for a moment, even after slacking her thirst with a victim. The Contessa Noir has its share of accidental absurdities. The English translation is a frequent source of amusement, and the pulp comic dialogue tips over sometimes into the ridiculousness. Um, let's see. Someone who never puts a foot wrong is Lena Romay. This is her film, and Franco's camera soaks her up, plunging into her face and seeking out her sex, drawn to it again and again. Nineteen years old, with full, slightly insolent lips, calm, turning to cold, dark eyes, shapely breasts and milky skin, she exudes teenage freshness animal magnetism, and the allure of youthful arrogance. She knows she looks good, she knows the effect of her nakedness, and she loves turning the full glare of her charm onto the camera. She rarely smiles, her eyes remain cold, even as her body heat radiates from the screen. While Franco's earlier muse, sold on Miranda, possessed unique facial beauty, her erotic appeal was chillier. It's difficult to imagine her summoning the full bloom of carnal energy that Romay leashes here. 
That's very true. Uh, the smaller roles are less vivid, though Jack Taylor deserves credit for his depressed, lonely poet, enchanted by the possibility of accompanying the Countess into other realms of existence. Uh, let's see. Will you take me with you one day behind the mist? He asks in the film's most quotable line. Taylor, although dressed like a ninny in clothes that seem to hail from a black adder parody of the metaphysical poets, black adder parody of metaphysical poets, keeps an admirably stoic visage, resembling a forlorn Miguel de Cervantes, and turning scenes of aimless wandering into moody delights that help to connect the otherwise isolated set pieces with the eerie landscapes of Madeira. It's also worth expressing that it's all that it's only through his performance that we see what fatal pleasures might actually entail as he surrenders to Irina in the final reel, shuddering and sobbing as his life force drains away. It's a pleasure, too, when Monica Swim and Alice Arno put in an appearance over an hour into the film, playing a lesbian couple who invite Irina to their castle, intending to subjugate her into sexual slavery. Arno plays the submissive partner and Swim the dominant. But when Swim orders Arno to whip their new guest. The Countess silently turns the tables. Arno lashes her mistress instead. Swim's uncomprehending terror as the roles are reversed is brilliantly played. For me, the one major flaw is the way Franco deploys David White's music. The title theme, which reoccurs several times throughout, is a beautiful arrangement for piano and strings, moving at a slow pace evocative of both swooning romance and aching dissolution. Working perfectly during the credits, it would have made an excellent choice for the death throes of the victims, yet for reasons that are hard to fathom, Franco scores Ardid's death the jaunty lounge-pop version of the piece, while Anna expires to a similar arrangement for a cheery Herb Albert trumpet. One has to say these perverse choices ride roughshod over emotional engagement and risk obscuring the erotic dynamic. Ardid's terminal pleasure ride and Anna's surrender to vampiric cunnilingus wilt beneath a shag pile carpet of toe-tapping 70s lounge music, which is funny in a kitsch sort of way, but ultimately unhelpful. It's only when we reach the death of lovelorn Baron von Rathry that the music matches the emotional core of death here with the orchestral arrangement adding gravity and a sense of morbid ravagement. Soundtrack malfunctions aside, Franco regards the life of Arena with fascination and also with sensitivity and sympathy. The emotional focus is resentfully on her. Irina exists in a world of sex, but her needs demand constant attention. As in the animal kingdom, where mating and hunting for food are a constant, for Irina, sex overrides everything. She's defined by it. She can find no release from it. The omnipresence of arousal may sound exciting, but it's also quite horrifying. David Cronenberg shivers, made two years later. A character relates something an old man said to her in a dream. He tells me that everything is erotic that everything is sexual, that even dying is an act of eroticism, that talking is sexual, that breathing is sexual, that even to physically exist is sexual. In Shivers, this pan-erotic vision turns to physical reality, a development which Cronenberg depicts with studied ambulance, ambivalence. The world in Shivers is way too uptight, but the alternative, an endless orgy, seems just as oppressive. Cronenberg and Jess Franco may seem like odd bedfellows, but one can discern a similar theme in Female Vampire. Irina lives in a world dominated by desire. She must constantly hunt for sex partners trapped on an endless treadmill of lust. 
The first time we see her, she's dressed like a pornographic comic strip character, bare-breasted and bare-cunted, in cape and belt and boots. To paraphrase Shivers, her style of dress is sexual. Her interactions are sexual. Her muteness is sexual. Even her physical existence is sexual. And Franco, a somewhat melancholy sensualist, shares Cronenberg's ambivalence, hence Irene's, Irina's sadness and her internal musings. Why has my soul so much need of peace and love when it cannot obtain it? The story ends with Irina having sucked the life force from the Baron von Rathry, deciding to end her lonely existence. In a simultaneously poetic and puzzling scene, she commits suicide by submerging herself in a bath of blood and water. We must assume the water that kills her as vampires are so often allergic to it. But has Irina really escaped the despair of immortality? As the film glides to the end, we hear distant voices calling her name. Ancestors, victims. And we see her walking once again through the same woods, the same mist that enshrouded her at the beginning. Seems that Irina has not escaped. Her melancholy journey will go on forever. Franco on screen. Franco is delightfully shabby as coroner turned vampire investigator Dr. Roberts. No relation to the pill-popping near namesake in the Beatles song. Nice. Uh, with long, greasy, uncombed hair, a scruffy beard, and a grubby overcoat, he looks as though he's been living rough in one of his own films for a few weeks. Cast and crew. This was the film, first Franco film to... This was the first Franco film, really to foreground Lena Romay, who plays to perfection the mute but hauntingly expressive vampire of the title. After several previous roles, which revealed gradually more and more of her talent, here was her chance to prove she could hold center stage, and she makes her mark indelibly. Ever since Soldado Rondo, Franco had been looking for his screen muse, and in La Contessa Noir, he finds her. Rome shares Miranda's icy yet vulnerable quality, but brings an additional dose of insolent sexuality. Uh, let's see. Music. Daniel White's main theme is his definitive achievement for Franco. It haunts the screen with an allure, port cinema, mechanical and memory wrapped around. Some say it resembles, for me, it prefigures, nobody does it better. Huh. Cardi Simon, 1977. Um, the arrangement is lush. Um, achingly lovely and yet grave and somber too. In one sequence, it assumes the role of psychic sexual interloper as the journalist senses the Countess while relaxing in her apartment only to find herself unwittingly fondling her pussy. It's as if the music is the Countess, but refrains, but refrain mingling with the subconscious lesbian fantasies of the victim, drawing her closer to death. As noted already, a Franco's schizophrenic soaring elsewhere generates a few giggles as the atmosphere is shattered by a lounge version of the main theme. Uh, let's see. Locations. Chiefly Fonchelle, Madeira. The Reed's Palace Hotel is seen in the establishing shot for Ramon Ardid's death. Anna, the journalist, is staying at a hotel near Café de Parque in Monte in the hills overlooking Fuchel. Tragically, the region suffered severe flooding and mudslides in February 2010 with the loss of many lives. The scene featuring Roger Germains was filmed on a farm in the outskirts of Paris, while the interior scenes with Monica Swim and Alice Arno were filmed in the city. Um, let's see. I talk about the UK theatrical release. Problems with that. Uh, connections. I'll read some of this. 
Connections. La Contessa Noir's crude, reductive English-language title, Female Vampire, suggests, if we're being kind, the condensation of a theme to its essentials. So, if this is the definitive female vampire film, so is this the definitive The precursors in the summer of 73 were increasingly numerous. Yeah, Dracula's Daughter, from 1936, from Universal, provided the first example, complete with a hint of predatory lesbianism. Um, Roger Vadim set the ball rolling with a faithful adaptation of Sharon de la Fanu's Carmilla, called Blood and Black Roses, I'm sorry, called Blood and Roses, 1960. Uh, then we did Crypt of the Vampires, 1964, also drew on Carmilla, but kept the lesbianism implied. Hammer got their teeth into the formula with uh, Vampire Lovers, 1970, uh, Jimmy Sangster's Lust for Vampire, 1971, and Twins of Evil, 1971. Harry Kumel added a dash of continental absinthe with his extraordinary Daughters of Darkness, May 71, and Jean Rollin staked his claim to the vampire crown with two magnificent ultra-low-budget artworks, Le Fresson de Vampires, April 71, and The Requiem for a Vampire, 1971. Spanish director Vincent Aranda's Blood Splattered Bride, released in September 72, predated Female Vampire by nearly a year. However, Franco had already initiated his own avant-garde take on the form with Vampiros Lesbos, shot in the summer of 1970. Also feeding into the iconography of female vampire is the comic strip character Vampirella, born in 1969 with his own magazine from Warren Publishing. Vampirella's character and backstory, a woman from the planet Draculon who comes to Earth as a good vampire to destroy our homegrown evil vampires are irrelevant to Franco, but her physical appearance, a curvaceous, scantily clad woman in a red slink suit and shiny black knee-high boots, must have surely influenced his vision. Romay's black thigh-high length boots and hip-hugging leather belt are as iconic and memorable as the Vampirella brand, with the removal of the sling suit contributing even sexual frankness. Franco's habit of recycling characters continues with an appearance from the blind son of Dr. Orloff, played in a delightfully eccentric performance by a French film critic and early Franco admirer Jean-Pierre Bouzou, while Dr. Roberts shows Orloff the cadaver of one of Irina's female victims, he ascertains the cause of death by fondling the snatch and stating that death occurred due to the puncturing of the vaginal lips and deformation of the clitoris. While Robert says that something must be done, Orloff sneers that he's aware of the presence around him in the dark, to which he now feels attracted. How are we to know that the pleasure isn't worth life itself? Why fight against it? In the deep silence all around me, I'm no longer alone. I'm in a new world, because I no longer need eyes to see. A world of wonder awaits, and it's only up to you to belong to it. And so the son of Dr. Orloff becomes a mystic, a development referred to in the 1988 film Faceless. Baron von Rathry reads a book that says Madeira is a location favored by scientists for the mythical city of Atlantis. Uh, let's see the two Machis films he did earlier. In an early scene intercutting a new Jack Taylor shaving in a hotel mirror and Lena Romay getting dressed echoes a similar scene in Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, 73. Orloff refers to the cult of Panthos, whose activity can be observed in the erotic rites of Frankenstein and Escalava Blanca, 1985. The pathologicaling of desire into something dangerous and depleting 
finds expression in several later Franco films, most notably Shining Sex and Dorian Gray, 75. Given that vampires live forever, Irina's sexual frustration is very much like the torture suffered by the, hero, hero, by the heroine in Gerard D'Amano's existential porno hit, Devil Miss Jones, 1973. Okay. So, uh, other versions. I'm going to kind of just slam through this because it's kind of a long episode. Um, so, yeah, basically, female vampires turn up in a bewildering number of variants over the years. Uh, was shot as the Contessa and was re-released to porn theaters with the addition of new hardcore scenes. And uh, and after that, it serviced on France video in the 80s. Uh, horror versions then turned up on American Force video as Erotic Kill, 72 minutes. And a shorter version of the edit was released in Finland, uh, 68 minutes as Bare Breasted Contessa. And then a second U.S. video release as Love's Irina, peddled the softcore sex version, um, and then in 90, they did a great market version also called Bare Breasted Contessa. And then in Italy, a version of video showed up as Erotic Killer in 67 minutes. Then they did a Erotic Kill Lady Dracula 2 from Germany. And then they did the Female Vampire Cut, 97 minutes. And then, uh, finally, Redemptions 2012 Blu ray release features a 100 minute erotic version, Female Vampire, and a 70 minute horror version, Erotic Kill, that combined after which brings together all versions footage with the exception of the hardcore inserts that's the version I saw uh, although listed okay blah 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 okay so there's that on that quite a bit quite a lengthy uh, compared to other films of his so but uh, yeah so that's all that uh, I watched the uh, Redemption uh, DVD or the Redemption Blu-ray of that and uh, that's a really good quite a bit of footage and a lot of good extra stuff on that uh, let's see. So, of course, always mission statement, praise in a memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. Uh, please find us at francoobserver at yahoo.com. Please download the episode. Please subscribe. Please rate and share. Please tell your friends. Tell any Franco fans you know of the podcast. Uh, we're going to try to nail all of his films, so let's join together on this ride. Uh, as you know, this is already... Uh, episode 54 so you have quite a bit of other programs and episodes to listen to so alrighty well that's going to wrap up this part Uh, hang on board and listen to Eric and I's review of Female Vampire and uh, hear him get all excited about Lean Rome one of his favorites Buenas noches Buddies, welcome once again to the Franco Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy, coming to you today back home again in Sacramento, California, home of Desperate Visions Productions in the Desperate Visions Compound. Uh, and in the compound, we were able to see Countess Irina and um, somebody who was equally happy and um, maybe the good word excited to see uh, Countess is... Uh, my friend and uh, co-host, Mr. Eric Whitwell. Hey! <laughs> so how excited were you to see Lena? So excited. <laughs> so excited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is Lena's breakthrough role. Um, yeah, and yeah. she has quite a breakthrough in this. Amazing. Amazing job. <laughs> yeah. Here's to you, Lena. 
So what I'll do is um, I will give the synopsis on this because even though some people don't know what happened or can't follow the film, there's quite a lengthy synopsis actually. So maybe okay. this will fill in the pictures because sometimes you know you watch a movie and you learn more about it after the reading of it. Oh, I didn't know this or that or something. <laughs> so we'll see how this goes. Yeah. All right. So you have um, Funcho Madeira, 22nd of February, 1974. Irina, the Countess of Karlstein, is a vampire whose craving for the vital energy of living beings means she can never enjoy sexual relations without causing the death of her partners. Sounds like a film I did called yeah. Love <laughs> I wonder why I gravitated to Jess Franco. I was telling Eric... Uh, this is probably like one of the five films that kind of got me into Franco. So, um, Having arrived in Madeira with her male secretary and taken up residence at a hilltop house once owned by her family, she immediately sets about finding victims. In the hills outside Funchal, she meets a man at a bird sanctuary and performs fellatio on him. He dies from her ministrations. Baron von Rathern Baron von Rathony, a visiting poet, drawn to Madeira by strange stories about the region, hears the victim's scream echo across the hills. Anna, a journalist, requests an audience with the Countess and quizzes her about her ancestors who once lived on the island. She also asks about the murder which occurred the previous night. The Countess responds only with hand gestures and nods of the head. She is mute, as is her secretary. The local police inspector and the coroner, Dr. Roberts, discuss the recent killings. Robert asserts that the victim was bitten by a vampire during orgasm and sucked dry of both blood and semen. The inspector thinks Roberts is crazy. Irina's next victim is the masseur of a nearby hotel. She drains him of sexual energy and her secretary disposes of the body. Roberts visits Dr. Orloff, a scholar and mystic, to, hell, to tell him about the recent vampire killing. The two men discuss the strange forces that reside on the island. The next night, Irina visits and seduces Anna, the journalist, killing her by draining her sexual energy. Growing ever more weary of the death she leaves in her wake, Irina attempts to satisfy her needs alone through masturbation, but finds the experience unbearingly frustrating. Baron von Rathney sees the Countess in the lobby of his hotel. The two have drinks on the veranda and feel a strong attraction to each other. The Baron realizes that Irina is a creature from another realm and begs her to take him there. Later that day, Irina visits Princess de Roquefort and her lesbian lover and engages in a sadomasochistic threesome which leaves the two women dead. Irina and Baron von Rathney meet again, and she takes him to her house in the Upper Hills. Although she feels a deep emotional attraction to the man, Irina cannot help but destroy him, too. Later, she visits Dr. Orloff to inform him that she intends to withdraw and leave mankind alone. Dr. Roberts, who plans to kill Irina, forces entrance to her home and kills her secretary, However, Irina has already chosen to end her life by bathing in a mixture of blood and water. So, Eric, what did you think about the film? Lena's amazing. Yeah. She's so goddamn beautiful. So, oh my gosh, so beautiful. Um, okay, it, I guess I was like trying to look too hard into it, trying to 
thinking that there was some, maybe some more something to the story that I was missing. Right. You know? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I guess you were just seeing what what it was. Right. Um, just kind of like her adventures. This day happens. That day happens. She meets these people. Just kind of yeah. like, you know, this couple, that couple. Kind of like um, Eugenie or something where yeah. just this happens and then this happens and then, you know, fall out from this and you change and stuff, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I was trying to look for too too deep into right. it. Like a, we're looking deep into something else. But. Yeah. Into the, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I would munch her ass. <laughs> well, that's like saying I would go outside and you know smell the fucking fl- flowers or yeah, something. Yeah, it's like I like pizza. <laughs> yeah, and there was quite a bit of pie on display. Yes, there was. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah her breakout role, deep dish. Supreme, yeah, indeed. Franco knew. Yeah, he knew. no, there was. There's many. This is this is the scene. Like I was telling Eric, it's funny. Like, like uh. Like this, this film and *Virgin Among the Living Dead* and maybe um, I don't know, maybe, maybe like two or three. I like say this is the five that really got me to kind of like okay, *A Slaves*. Maybe the third that really made me really just dive into Franco. And I haven't watched this for a long time, but like thus, I liked this film before I liked Franco. And watching it now, you see a lot more. And like I was telling Eric, this is a good film to show people if you really want to see if they're really into Franco or not, if they like it or not, because this has a lot of his stuff, a lot of zooms to the. Vagina, a lot of just worshiping Lena, Lena's magic tongue, just yeah. all the stuff that we're going to go over the list later. But a lot of the things, whether if you dig it, then you'll like Franco films. If you dig it, think, or if you think it's weird or slow or I don't fuck, whatever, uh, it's boring or whatever, then you won't like his yeah. films. So then this is a good example of his style, kind of in a nutshell. You see later on, and a lot of the same themes and trappings and stuff, you know, and a lot of the good character actors and people that you dig throughout the films, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I. I really enjoyed it. My, this is my third time seeing it. Uh, now I'm not seeing it all the time, and I definitely enjoyed it now. Yeah, being where I'm at now than I first came into the world, you know. So. Yeah. But um, yeah, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go through and do the list, and then we'll kind of go over and talk about certain parts that we saw or that we thought were pretty cool or whatever. All right. So uh, first on the list, body of water. Yes. Yes. Uh, two and three sailboat and boats in general. Yes. Yes. U- usually around Jack Taylor's parts, which was cool. You've seen him more than with Lena because he was always out by the sea and she was uh, landbound and stuff. Or she would fly off the balconies, but you wouldn't see the water. And you just see the, the trees and the hills and stuff. Uh, speaking of trees, palm trees, yes. yes. Uh, five jungle sound effects. Yeah, there was jungle sound effects. Yeah. There was a lot of sound effects. Like It was supposed to be bats, but it was like the shit in the jungle or whatever. Like his library effects that he's used before in different films, you know. In, in weird times too, like they're like talking, yeah. like inside of a room, they're talking. <laughs> it's like, but what's cool is like that's what I was saying because Lena never talked; she was mute in this, so she always had sounds that surrounded her, and it was either bats or the wind or yeah. spirits or the hauntingness of her guilt or whatever. Is all this sounds that was always in her? It was her soundtrack that played on her in quiet moments so it filled those scenes pretty well I thought it was yeah. kind of a cool touch you know yeah definitely so, something cheap, cheap to do that's a clever idea uh, number six chained up person yes. yes there was a gal that's chained up bloody at the uh, sadomasochist the S&M sequence which I really liked a lot we'll go into that sequence later yeah um, number seven dance scenes on stage stripping uh, no 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 no, no nothing like that yeah, and that's been a lot of strippers, but nothing like in, yeah. this, in that context. Um, club scenes, dancing, no. Um, okay, nine, jazz music. Yeah, a lot of good jazz music yeah. in this, especially uh, trumpet and really cool m- mellow music. 
10 and 11 excessive zooms and out of focus shots those two go oh yeah hand. oh yeah <laughs> very much in this a lot of adjusting focus quite a few times yeah um lots of uh zoom in zoom outs figuring out how deep into deep out and um but one, one thing in sequence i liked a lot was um in the beginning when lena is walking toward the camera uh i mean i was gonna say that later but i'll say this now where she's yeah. walking toward the camera and the in the camera zooms like you're going on a ride like you're flying toward her vagina and then up to her face and then she bumps into the camera she totally bumped into the camera yeah right to the right to the fucking actual camera her face hits it you see it and they kept that in the film yeah. too. they didn't cut it out it was, it's funny it zoomed so close into her amazing bush that yeah. the whole screen was black yeah like it just totally zoomed right in the yeah, screen was black it goes like this and it flies up I was like this would be cool for an IMAX film this, this one sequence uh, let's see. Um, okay, uh, so number twelve, uh, number twelve, mirror shots. Yeah, quite yeah. a few really cool mirror shots actually. And uh, there's a mirror shot of uh, Jack Taylor's hog, which is pretty funny. <laughs> uh, I was like, hey, there's his hog in the mirror shot. <laughs> and Pamela, um, I mean, um, Monica swims first appearances naked uh, yeah. against a mirror, which is funny. So. A totally unnecessary dude scene too. It's really funny. Thankful, like happy yeah. it was in there. Oh yeah, like, was, totally happy it was in there. But but if you look at the context, it makes no sense. No sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. You know, just get naked, and we'll put you in there. Scene. Yeah, collapse on a bed, exactly. and then now you're playing chess. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, uh, number thirteen. Mind control themes. Definitely yeah. the vampire and all that. She controlled the woman, the journalist who came over across the room, and all that controlled her mind and, and broke it. So definitely. Um, Let's see, number fourteen, magic tongue scenes, most oh, definitely. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Lita, oh yeah. Lita's magic tongue was in ev- everywhere in this film. That was incredible. Yeah, up asses and mouths on nipples, <laughs> along bed, bed posts, yeah. pillows, uh, <laughs> Jack Taylor's whatever. <laughs> uh, let's see, uh, fifteen, red light. Yes, there's yes. red light in the Ramon Ardid massage um, masseuse scene. Uh, where they have sex, there's definitely red light in just that sequence on her bed. Uh, 16, sheepskin, no, masturbate with the C item. Okay, so that, I was trying to figure out that yeah, one. Right. Because the, the, the pillow, because she was grinding on the pillow. Right. Circular long, pillow? <laughs> or that bedpost, too. She yeah, was, the bedpost. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe carved wood. <laughs> <laughs> carved wood and curved pillow. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, yeah I, was trying to, I was trying to figure out something for that. Yeah, Good call. Yeah, that could be either or the or. Yeah. Uh, 17, mad scientist, no. Yeah. But she did have a mute, crazed assistant, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, 18, fish tank shots, nothing of that. Yeah. No talking parrots or talking animals of any kind. Yeah. Uh, number 20, in credit sequence, yes or no, yes. Yeah. Uh, handwritten note or a handwritten sign, no. Yeah. Uh, spiral staircase shot. And there's kind of a shot where Jack Taylor's coming down the hotel area or whatever he sees her sitting he's kind of doing a half then down it's not a total circular but that's like the only thing yeah. i could really pull for would be that but i would say no but yeah. uh number three inept cops yes, yes but less so um although the one was excited about the pose of the uh, stuffed animal that was used to smuggle drugs and he said look at the erotic pose or oh, that's a sexy pose like, yeah. yeah that's a sexy pose it's like this tiger yeah it was it's a like, stuffed tiger yeah, his arms were <laughs> astride his legs were kicked out or something i don't know and number 14 belly chains no belly chains i don't think. no it, no. it was 
She was wearing that belt. So she had something around her belly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. The uh, black belt was, yeah. was her version of the belly chain. Good call, actually. Yeah, there's that. Um, and then uh, I thought the other gal had... Uh, oh, no, no. Yeah, she didn't have a belt either. It was some other belt that we had noticed. Jack Taylor had a gold belt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His belt was fucking pretty funny. Okay, so... She um, had a flute also. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sure he knows his way around a flute or two. Um, <laughs> let's see. So, yeah, okay, so in this one, yeah, the first nudity is like 41 seconds into the film. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool. Obviously, Lena Romay uh, walking naked in uh, this black cape, uh, looking magnificent with this black belt. It looks like she's wearing black underwears, but it's just her pubic hair right in <laughs> front. It's a nice uh, black underwear looking. Yeah. And uh, her awesome black boots with this, like, cool design on the side. It's like a dragon or some weird ornate thing uh, with the high black uh heel and everything looking mighty strong striding through this fog fucking forest toward the camera automatically is a great opening image yeah and uh yeah you see the female vampire in that and yeah and then i wrote uh, you have a nice ride into the bush shot with her when she bumps the camera and uh, already by that time we have like three out of focus shots already like in the first couple of minutes yeah uh and then we have the body of water and then um we have uh, it's funny too so i noticed um it says uh that like this I counted it because you have it's very similar to Vampire's Lesbos and then Dracula's Daughter and then uh, the female vampire um, this film the third where it's very similar of you have the countess and a lot of the same setups and the same kind of basic storyline of the reporter coming to visit her to get the ideas in that and to go over and then she hypnotizes her and brings her to her and they use a lot of the same uh, routine in that, that that they would use um he had mentioned, uh, I think that uh, fourth film. Oh yeah, okay. No, this is the different. I'm sorry, that opening on him mixed up. But um, yeah, so we had that, um, and it was cool that I liked that. Uh, her place was beyond the mist, and it was like a certain land that was. It didn't, they never said she's from Transylvania or she's from a certain location. She was just from beyond the mist. So they said that she was from not this world or she's just from some other land. And that was almost like the last film that, uh, like Lutonice, where in the beginning of it, uh, Atlantis or somewhere, there was a certain area that was the fog behind the area and it was like a hidden type of place. Um, but uh, yeah, you have that really cool. And then uh, also, too, I noticed on Dr. Orloff's desk, he has a cool uh, freighter ship which is similar to the ship that would carry Dracula or um, Nosferatu or anything like that in the coffin over on the ship across the sea. Almost of uh, her, uh, that was like the vampire uh, motif as well in that thing um, with him. And um, so yeah, everything up to that point. Um, let's see, w- w- what did you think of everything up until the point where you see Alice Arno and Monica Sloan and all that, like that first beginning where like you, you see her and then you see her with Jack Taylor and then her with the guy, you know, with the bird sanctuary yeah. and, and everything. I mean, because well, I know there's no dialogue. Really for there's her, no really right? dialogue, yeah, yeah. but it's still, it's pretty, it's really elegantly shot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, I wasn't sure what to expect by looking at the cover. So the cover kind of made me think it was going to be a little bit more of a cheesier. Right. This kind of movie, but then like watching it, it's like very elegant, very, uh, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. It has a good pacing to it. Yeah. And it's cool, too, as like in the Franco universe, because you have this as like, I think, like, because uh, Alice Arno starts winding down her career with Franco films around this film. I'm looking ahead, jump ahead and look and see, but it's definitely a Monica Swim's first film. And uh, it's cool because then they carry on the Marquis de Sade 
type of mentality as well where they have the S&M thing and you could tell right off the band that Alice is the queen again she's the strong one wearing her pantyhose uh, instead of pants yeah. <laughs> which I thought was it really interesting and their leather jacket and their cool necklace and that cool white horn necklace again and uh, like her black kind of leather pleather jacket and then Monica swims like the princess and she's the uh, masochist and then of course their relationship is in any desaad is She's only there to help her satisfy her urge, and she'll be her partner in crime until it's time to flip, the same as in Eugenie Desaad and, and um, Eugenie and um, Justine and all the other ones like that have that same mentality. And later on, Christ's Pleasure, and uh, quite a few, the, that's the most Desaad mentality, and it was really cool to see that play out in that scene because it's like another, it's like he has uh, Vampiros Lesbos and Eugenie and a few of his other films kind of put together in this film, some, 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 some of these similar sequences and uh, that part I really dug. And it's cool to see like Monica swimming out, Arnold playing chess. It's like these two powerful women going back and forth. And then like Lena comes in and like checkmates them or whatever. Like yeah, takes the piece and moves it around and shows that she's the strongest one that she can take over. And, and like I'm here to fucking do whatever, you know. Yeah. You can whip the shit out of me, but I'm still going to fucking <laughs> turn the tables on your ass and go after you, you know. Which that ends up being what's going on, you know, with Lena coming into the universe, taking on her dominance. Alice stepping aside, Monica ride along with them and everything going, you know, and this is the next stage of how it goes, you know, but, uh, it's also a nice tool to see Alice Arno with a whip again in that scene, whipping the shit out of her. It's yeah. a good thing. And a couple of times she's hitting Lena and that couple of times it looked like it hit close to her nose. Yeah. Like there's a quick like thing where it's like, look like pretty clean. Yeah. No, it looks like, yeah, she got hit a couple of times in that. Yeah. And also too, uh, I noticed, um, Monica swim has the three winged eye makeup, uh, which were they used in the last film? Uh, Le Glutinés, the the Atlantic people, they all had the three, three winged eye makeup, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it looks really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really cool. So she carried that over into this film. Um, and then one thing I noticed too, which is really funny, um, I, I started going on this really weird, like laughing trip, and thinking of stuff that I never thought before. So in this film, you have uh, Lena Romay wears this really cool, kind of like white doily, beautiful like dress. And then uh, just seeing where her and Jack Taylor and Jack Taylor straight up looks like um, Han Solo. He's got the black Han Solo vest <laughs> and like these pants and stuff. And together I'm like, oh look, there's Han Solo and Princess Leia. And then of course you have Jess Franco as a um, Yoda, you know. Yeah. But I have those two walking together, and I was like, and I had this thought. I was like, well, what if like say Lena Romay got cast in Star Wars back in the day, and say like she made these films, and then she got cast in Star Wars, and, and that was her universe. And say Carrie Fisher wasn't cast, and it was Lena Romay. And then she did this one Star Wars film. And I don't know, maybe it did something and all the other films became. Or maybe it was just this one film and that was it. Like maybe Flash Gordon or Dune or something, you know. And like say a lot of mainstream people know, oh, she's from this movie, Star Wars. But then say, you know, maybe she did legit movies after that. Maybe she did no other Franco films. Or maybe she went back and did Franco films and stuff. But just think of like another world that Lena Romay was Princess Leia. You know, and it makes sense to Leia, you know, because, yeah. you know, she likes Leia and all <laughs> And Lena will Leia. Oh, know? dude, yeah, yeah. Watch Rose Royce Baby, Lena will Leia. But, yeah, uh, I'm just imagining, like, the, the scene with Jabba the Hutt, like, how different it would be if that was Lena. Yeah. Like. <laughs> but no, I was laughing. Licking the chain. Yeah. Yeah. Because Jabba the Hutt, his tongue, was his tongue based off of uh, Lena's? Yeah, exactly. Because. <laughs> She'd be chained. Well, see, it's funny too because you always go to the third film. I, I brought up Star Wars. You're already thinking there'll be a Jedi or whatever. That well, I just be, keep you know. thinking Slave Leia. Yeah, I just exactly. keep. I, I just want to see Lena in that outfit. Well, Lena's used to being chained up, and so yeah, yeah. she'd be that and stuff. But uh, but yeah, no, that's funny. 
But uh, yeah, oh, and maybe the the Jabba can be the the really big heavy set guy that was in the oh yeah the with the, films. the little yeah the little cap yeah, well, I yeah I can't think of his name but yeah but uh, no that, that that's funny but um, no so the guy who's reading comics comic books yeah 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 he's in the uh, Dietrich films he's in Slaves yeah. and he's in um, uh, a bunch of them so yeah but no this is uh, this is a, a, a fun film. Um, you have Lena Romay, of course, Jack Taylor, Alice Arno's cool, small part, Monica Swim's got a small part, Jess Franco, uh, always playing the vampire hunter yet again. Um, <laughs> Franco, too. Talking about hair, Lena Romay's hair looked very healthy and very clean. Oh, so healthy. And Franco's hair is very greasy and yeah. just uncombed and, you know, split ends up to yin-yang, you know. <laughs> uh, so that was pretty funny, nice transition there. Oh, also, too, one thing I noticed watching this, uh, like we're talking about, this is Lena's breakthrough role, and, and you see the last scene in the end where she's in the, the bathtub and she's bathing in that with the blood, and, and you see him watching it as well, just in being mesmerized by her, yeah. you know, of her, wow, just watching it go go to town. And also, to the filming of the zooming in and out of her and stuff, is like, that's a good thing. of Especially the whole movie, too, you see him really trying to get couple times where he's really excited with the camera and he really wants to see how far he can zoom in to see how far up yeah. her ass he can go like how deep how deep can his lens go you know and uh <laughs> and you see the fascination and the excitedness definitely with him filming her in this where he's like he's really starting to notice her a lot more and i'm sure he has the last few films but this yeah. one's like now that she's a lead he can really like really he's like fucking you know yeah, she's going to town, to man. Like she's yeah. going to town. Some of those scenes, like yeah, we were like even talking about like we don't know how much of it was like ad lib, how much she like, you know, she just kept going and he just allowed the scene to keep going or yeah. like yeah, the scene with uh, okay, I didn't bring her name up. Uh, let's see, the blonde haired lady uh, Anna Watakan, I believe it would be the person. Is not else? I don't know. Not Franco. Yeah, the yeah. reporter. Yeah, it is here. Does it say anything on her name? That's funny. It just says her name, uh, sir. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it just says Anne Wickcan. Period. Because before that's Luis Barbu, Irina's mute servant, and then Anne Wickcan. Period. And then Bigotini, the vice cop, that was a heavy set guy. And then, yeah. Oh, so yeah, they just have her. Yeah. So Anne Watican is her name. Yeah, she was kind of um, reminded me of a little bit of like I said, Britt Nichols, and um, I've got the lady's name. I already spaced it already. But the lady from Female Vampire and that, and uh, she killed the next to see. The blonde lady, um, uh, damn it. Stanford? No. No, um, no, 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 no um, uh, give me a second here. I'm thinking, uh, you a Stromberg. You a Stromberg, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, you, you Stromberg. Stromberg, yeah, 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 so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, um, we watched the, uh, 100 minute, um, uh, 100-minute European cut, uh, female vampire. That's the quote-unquote erotic version. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, the femme vampire, the female vampire. And then, uh, of course, there's the uh, erotic kill, which is the shorter um, version that cuts out all of the nudity, I guess, in that part and, uh, you know, just does the blood from the neck. But, you know, I mean, this is a very sexual film, but it's not graphic. No. I mean, in theory, you know, they're, it's going on and stuff, but you don't see dick going in her mouth you don't see anybody fucking for real or nothing so yeah, there's no yeah. insert shots or nothing like that you know but, it was implied there's a lot of nudity but it wasn't like yeah you didn't see right see the actual sex act having yeah but like, uh oh yeah so okay let me ask you your opinion. So, so what's your opinion of uh, Jack Taylor in this film <laughs> 
Because he hasn't been in a Franco film for a while. He's kind of he just hates movie. kissing, man. Like he just hates kissing. Like uh, I don't know if he's just not attracted to Lena, or he just I don't know, man. He just. Yeah, it's almost like when he doesn't have Howard Vernon, he has he has uh, Jack Taylor because it's been Howard Vernon for a long time. Yeah, I saw about that. Howard Vernon's not in this either, so it's where he has Jack Taylor come in. I mean, Jack Taylor though, aside from some of his outfits, he fucking looks cool. He has a cool glasses. He has yeah. a cool fucking mustache. Yeah, fucking all that shit. You know, he's got style and shit. He's the fucking man and stuff. You know, good actor dies really good. Uh, but yeah, his his uh, romantic scenes always seem like they're distant, or he's he's not in the place, or he's. I don't know. He's thinking about something. I don't know. Something's always a little off about his scenes. He he does a little better in this though um, compared to some of his other ones. But yeah, I don't know. Very interesting. You know? Yeah, it, it just looks bad. Like it just looks bad. Like you would think they would want to get the best shot, and yeah, you can be professional. I think imagine and still kiss. Like, right, right, right. At least you know, that, you yeah. know, you don't have to like. Get but like, but on his, it always looks so fake. Like, so fake. Yeah, you 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 see through it more than with other people. You know. So, yeah. No, it's it looks real bad, real bad. Because like Howard Vernon does it, and you can tell he's not. You know being a creep or being really into it but he's he's doing it where it's believable but it's minimal yeah like jack taylor does it where he's just like kissing all over the place but the lips and he's just he does so much to overcompensate it just looks so fake you know? yeah it's just i don't know but he's just like rubbing his face on him yeah he's yeah. just like he's just rubbing his like he has like an itch yeah he's just rubbing his face on him. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. uh so we all see if you have just frank of course um and then uh, Luis Barbu, of course, returns. It was cool to yeah. see him again. This great scar on his face and his great mugging. There's a scene where he's confronting uh, Jess Franco and makes the big eyes out of yeah. him. It's really funny because he shoves Jess Franco down. That's my favorite part. <laughs> Fucking shoves him down the ground hard. That was funny. That was probably a nice little payback for, you know. Making him have his dick out when he's yeah. like, getting whipped with a fucking on his dick <laughs> and the spikes coming up and the erotic rights of Frankenstein movie or when he had to carry that woman up the hill fucking all the time on his back yeah. right up there. And, I mean, Franco's put him through some paces, you know, carry oh, yeah. that body up and they shoot him and stuff. So, so he'd probably like to fucking shove him down one time. All right, well, fucking shove your ass down. He's like, oh, okay, so I'm a mute servant again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and he's actually like, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. So he just <laughs> like, give him a nice shove. Yeah. Know? That's funny. Uh, let's see. And then we have, uh, who else we got on here? Um, Bigotini again. He was in the last film as uh, the assistant. From Las Bernalis, he was uh, Howard Vernon's assistant, magician, and was a comic sidekick. And here he's a comic sidekick as the cop that talks about the statue with the pose, you know. And yeah. Really, really brief scene. He's only in it for like two minutes or something. Uh, and then Pierre Correr is the inspector speaking with Dr. Roberts. Uh, Ramon Ardit, of course, as the hotel masseur. And Jean-Pierre Boulou as Dr. Orloff. Yeah, it's weird. He's like a different Dr. Orloff. Another Dr. Orloff. He's blind. Uh, he has some good scenes, good dialogue. He offers advice to Jess Franco's character. And um, But yeah, he's a really interesting guy, really, you know far out oh and then of course he examines uh monica Swim's Swim, body. yeah yeah you know almost you know i'm curious who's a better inspector him and his idea well actually he found the truth of filling the canine bites on her vagina yeah so hers him is that or eric as the psychologist his way uh, of curing the jumping on top of her yeah her was, so you know um i would say this guy this guy's so, better yeah, yeah he's a little bit more serious as a dr orloff eric as a psychiatrist was a a little rapey. Yeah, but I was thinking, <laughs> I mean, his methods are pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, never yeah. seen him like that far. Uh, whoa, you know. Oh, yeah, he was rubbing her. Yeah, he was yeah. rubbing Monica's oh, Yeah, he was, he was getting into it. He was burying knuckles more. Yeah, yeah. More, yeah. 
But uh, <laughs> yeah, see, Eric, Eric's just thinking about that. <laughs> but dude, like, oh my gosh, Lena Romay was shoving her face into the crotches of everyone. Yeah, like she was like, I mean, you say that in a surprised way. Oh well, I mean, it's just there was no like, you know, like yeah, her like cheeks were like all over their wingdings. Yeah, <laughs> like oh, uh, and, and another too. Uh, hey, there's my fucking. Uh, okay, whoa, that's that answers one of my questions. Wow, awesome! I just learned something. So I had a, uh, I always thought Richard DeConnect was uh, an alias. As an editor, I thought that was the name Richard D. Connect. And I would tell people that I thought it was an alias. I wasn't sure. Then I thought it was a real person. Well, here I learned uh, assistant director Richard D. Connect, a.k.a. Bigotini. So the fat guy that was making the thing about the statue, oh, that's an erotic yeah, pose, yeah. that guy. And he was in the last film, a fat comedy guy with a black mustache. He's the assistant director. Okay. He, that's Richard D. Connect. Ta-da. So, oh, yeah. So okay. Bigotini's his alias, just like... Um, um, Mario Lippert is Howard Vernon's yeah. alias as assistant thing, and because Franco, I was getting ready to bring up Franco uses a new alias in this. Uh, on this, director of photography Jess Franco as Joan Vincent. Joan Vincent. Yeah, Joan J O A N. Joan Vincent. That's hilarious. Yeah, so he's Joan Vincent. Um, <laughs> let's see. The uh, actual editor. Oh, Jess Franco actually edited this film. That's interesting. He doesn't edit his films either. Um, assistant director, Richard DeConnect, a.k.a. Bigotini. Still photographer, Ramon Ardid. So he did photography on this instead. Because Howard Vernon wasn't here. So you brought in um, uh, Paul, um, Jack Taylor to do the physical stuff. And then photography, Ramon Ardid, which he was a photographer as well, um, mostly. So, And then uh, assistant editor, Ramon Ardid. Okay, that's really cool. So, yeah, I didn't know Bigotini is Richard DeConnect. So, okay. yeah, learn something new every fucking day, man. That's cool. I was just thinking about that recently, too, the last week or so. Think about Richard DeConnect, thinking it was Franco, or then I thought it was a real guy, or it was somebody else, yeah. trying to figure out who it was. So, that's Bigotini. And Bigotini just popped up in the last two films, and I thought he was like some comedian from over there or something that they kind of just brought him. Because one name, like Bigotini, you know, he yeah. thought some regional thing or something. So, yeah, that's Richard DeConnect. If you look at a lot of the credits, Richard DeConnect is an editor on a lot of the films. So, yeah. so that's the editor. So yeah, even as an editor, all of his friends acting in the film and little bit parts, the cameraman, editors, everybody, you know. So that's the guy who left the, the scene of her walking into the camera. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. She came into the place and then he goes out. But uh, yeah, so cool. Well, now you, now you learn something new. So uh, do you have any closing thoughts besides your uh, sneezing fit thinking about... Uh, him sticking his fingers up and wanted to swim. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, now, now that's all I'm thinking about. Yeah. Um, no, nah, that was fun. That was a fun movie. It's uh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool seeing Lena in the beginning stages of her acting career. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of cool to just to see how how she is. You know, because yeah. she definitely grows as you know. Yeah, she's eager. You can see she doesn't. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. She isn't as uh, wild yet. I mean, she's wild, but she's more waiting to be wild you know she's kind of just yeah on those edges and she's starting to move a little closer to the middle you know each film she's a little more you know letting the fucking dogs out a little bit you know oh my god she looks so great in doggy position speaking of dogs oh yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's just insane yeah and like uh as uh as purely uh uh 
as purely cosmetically speaking to her body at this frame of her life is just magnificent. Insane. Yeah. yeah, just everything from her skin to coloring of her and everything. So we don't want to sound like serial killers, so we won't go into <laughs> too much detail here. But I do own this movie at home. <laughs> yeah. And let's say I'm sure in about three weeks there'll be a ring burned on the inside of the... Uh, I mean, you know, you got scenes like this in the movie. You just can't help, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Lots of Lena and her magic fingers and her magic tongue and her magic thumb. Yeah, so. Anyways, with that said, I think that'll wrap up uh. this edition, episode 54. <laughs> A lot of Eric crying and moaning <laughs> in the background. Sadly moaning more like, it's like uh. <sighs> poor Lena. Yeah, so. All right. Well, I don't know what else to say. I'm going to kind of like uh, push him out of here. He's kind of uncomfortable right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, buenas noches. Beautiful nights. Mm-hmm.